A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians. Brothers and sisters, you heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and progressed in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my race, since I was even more a zealot for my ancestral traditions. But when he who from my mother's womb had set me apart and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Rather, I went into Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles, only James, the brother of the Lord. As to what I am writing to you, behold, before God I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown personally to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only kept hearing that, the one who once, once was persecuting us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So they glorified God because of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. So we reflect upon St. Peter and St. Paul, of course, There's a great historical significance of St. Peter and Paul for us. The original Petersburg church was dedicated to St. Peter and St. Paul. And so the all four of our parishes come from from that one, that one kind of that one root. All of us have blossomed from that. And so there's a historical kind of like maybe nostalgia that we have for St. Peter and St. Paul. But of course, it's more than just looking, looking back and looking back in, in that, because these two saints, Peter and Paul, are particularly bold men. They're particularly fiery souls. They're particular kind of got some, them, some fierceness to them. And what, when we look at it, we see like the depth of Paul's conversion. You think about in this, this reading we just heard we, heard, we hear Paul describing about how he persecuted the church of God beyond measure. In the Acts of the Apostles, he describes taking Christians out of their homes, dragging them into the streets, and having them sent to prison eventually to be martyred. And then, of course, Peter has to say, oh yeah, you've converted, welcome to the family. And what a dramatic thing that is to have those two together. But they're both very broken men, what we see in Peter and Paul. Of course, as I said, Paul's persecution of the church but then St. Peter's going through his own brokenness, his own denying Jesus three times and then being brought back by, by Christ's love and his mercy. And they have to constantly rediscover what it means that Jesus has suffered and died for them, that he's given them new life. They have to constantly wrap their heads around this. And then they're sent out to be the, found, the, the beginning of the church, to start all of this brand new, having no clue what they're doing. There's nobody they can call and ask and say, hey, when you were doing this, what, what, how did you do this? When there's nobody that can help them. There's nobody that's done this before. They're doing everything new themselves. But yet they have the Lord at work with them. 
As they step out into the unknown, they have the Lord there to guide them in the church. And as they continue to go forward, they dramatically are called out and have to wrestle with this. And the memory of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them is etched upon their hearts, etched upon their souls. And Paul, three times in the Acts of the Apostles, describes what the mercy that God has had on them, what God has done to change their lo- his life. And St. Peter in his letters talks about how he's been brought new, about how the Lord has changed him. So this memory of Christ is always etched upon their heart and animates everything that they do in the church. And so as we gather here today, we, we ask God, we ask the Holy Spirit, are these the fellows, right? Are these the saints that are going to be our patrons, the one to set the example, the ones to guide us, the ones to intercede for us? Are they the ones who are going to be our model? And to think about, if we think so, what that says for us, that all of us are like St. Peter and St. Paul, broken. Whether it's like St. Paul who's persecuted or St. Peter who's denied the Lord, all of us who gather here are ones who need the Lord to fix us, are ones who need the Lord to heal us, ones who need the Lord to change our hearts. And then we're sent off to do something new, to do something very bold, to do something that we don't exactly have an instruction manual on how to do it. There's no guide for how to do what we're doing, and yet the Lord sends us out to do it anyways. The Lord sends us and says, my grace is sufficient for you. I will give you absolutely everything you need. You just have to trust. And St. Peter and St. Paul had to wrestle with that every day of their lives, not knowing what they're doing, but simply returning to the Lord day after day, time after time, not knowing what the Lord is doing, but yet knowing they still have to do it. And so as we, we wrestle with who the Lord is calling us to choose to be our patron, this is who he places before us as an option. St. Peter and St. Paul, two of the great apostles, men who knew that were, they were broken, who allowed the Lord to change their hearts, and then they, he sent them off to be his missionaries, to be the founders of doing something new, of beginning this, this great Christian movement. And so we ask the Lord, is this who he's, who he's chosen for us? Are these the examples, these two pillars of the faith, going to be our examples in following Christ and in the future, not knowing really what the Lord has in store for us, but trusting that God continues to guide us on this path. The Responsorial Psalm, let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. Let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. O shepherd of Israel, hearken, O guide of the flock of Joseph. From your throne upon the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, rouse your power and come to save us. Let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you burn with anger while your people pray? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in ample measure. You have left us to be fought over by our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. About a hundred times in the Old Testament, there's a reference 
to the face of God. There's a reference to God's face, which is, which is really quite peculiar because, you know, your Old Testament, they don't make images, right? There's no images of God and anything, images, uncouth images get crushed. And yet there's this, this longing in the Old Testament to see the face of God. And we just heard, of course, the responsorial song that we said, let us see your face, Lord, and we shall be saved. And there's just such a sense of longing, just a sense of desire to see God face to face. And so often of those hundred times in the Old Testament, they're in the Psalms. But maybe even the, more, the most famous instance of seeing the face of God is Moses when he's on Mount Sinai, right? After they make the golden calf, Moses goes up and he says, Lord, let me, let me just see you. And what happens is the Lord passes by and all he sees is the back of the Lord. He doesn't see him face to face. And this desire to see the face of God continues all throughout the Old Testament and even begins in the New Testament as well, right up until the Last Supper. The Last Supper, there's an interaction between Jesus and Philip. And Philip tells Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Show us the Father and that'll be enough. If you just show us the Father, if we can just see him, we won't need anything else. Nothing else will matter. We'll be satisfied. Just show us the Father, Lord, and that'll be enough. And Jesus' response to Philip is, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Basically, his response is, here in my face, you see God. You see the Lord face to face. The fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. People longing to see God face to face. And there it is, in Jesus Christ, the face of God is right there before Philip, before each and every one of us, which is a revolution, which is like a nuclear bomb going off spiritually. God has a face. We can see him and he can look back at us and we can see him looking back at us, which means he's a person, which means we can be in relationship with him. And that's this revolution That God has a face and we can be in relationship with him as a person. He's not an abstract kind of entity. He's not like the force in Star Wars, but he's a person. And he has a face. And we can see him look at us. We can hear his voice. We can see him looking back at us. We can hear him cough. We can watch him cry. God has a face. And that face is seen in Jesus Christ. And you think about this in relationship to Christmas as we're celebrating it, that God has a face and Mary holding this child in her arms, in her hands, knows his face. And just like a mom, every little squirm, every little squint, every little move of the mouth, she knows what it means. If he's hungry, if he's tired, if he's if he's uncomfortable, that he's got a face and Mary can know this face. This continues all throughout Jesus's life. To think about all of those different people who saw Jesus' face. And whether that was a face of mercy. Or even the words when he tells his apostles, will you also leave me? That face and imagine what that's like. All the way up to the suffering of Jesus. And that face gets punched. It gets beaten. It is crucifixion. It gets crowned with thorns and blood drips upon it. And that face gets memorialized as Veronica removes her veil, offers it to Jesus, and his face is left upon that cloth. 
And interestingly, all four of our parishes have an image somewhere, somewhat hidden, of the face of Jesus. Here at Immaculate Conception, there's a devotional image in the back by the statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary of the face of Jesus Christ. And to think about this great face, the face of God who longs to see us and wants us to look back at him. And if we think that this may be the name of our parishes, what does that, what does that say about us? Except that we're people that are obsessed with the face of Jesus. We're people that would go for miles, that would do anything, that have that same longing in us that the Old Testament had. Lord, show us your face and we'll be saved. Lord, show us your face and that'll just simply be enough for us. That's what we're saying. That's what we're claiming is this face of God is everything for us, that it's sufficient for all that we need. But then once we've seen the face of God, once we've looked upon Jesus face to face, that then we're able to go out to a world that also is longing to see the face of God. So much depression, so much anxiety, so much worry, so much division in our world. And we're called to be people that make the face of God known, that bring the face of Jesus to difficult places, to places where there's no hope, to places where there's darkness. That would be what a parish called the holy face of Jesus. That would be the mission, to be the face of Christ to the world. Of course, first and foremost, to seek that face of God, to seek the face of Jesus Christ and to know it's everything for us. Most especially to see it here in the Eucharist. That when we gather before Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, it's his face there before us, looking back at us, smiling, weeping, laughing, consoling. That it's that gaze of Jesus penetrating our, our sometimes hard hearts, or at least our very much our weary hearts. And it's that face of God looking back at us. And so that's what we, what we wrestle with now. If the Lord is calling us to be a holy face of Jesus, to be entrusted to the face of Christ, are we people obsessed with the gaze of Jesus, longing to see his face, just like everybody in the Old Testament, just like St. Philip, and then people who are willing to radiate that face of Jesus Christ to a world, to a world that's longing to see Jesus Christ, who's longing to have the face of Jesus penetrate all of our hearts. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. This gospel that we just heard is the one that we we look to as uh, Jesus establishing Peter as the first pope. And then, of course, that that role of the keys in the Old Testament, the one who had the keys was always the, the chief steward of the kingdom. So he makes Peter that chief steward care for his for his kingdom. And of course, those keys get passed down from one pope to the next 263 times from Peter to St. John Paul II. So he lived as the successor to St. Peter for 27 years as the pope. And so we look to this this gospel today to show us a little bit about the successor to St. Peter, about St. John Paul II's life. And of course, nobody is born the pope. You know, you've, people have got hopes and dreams for their children, but no child's born in its mother's arms. And you think, yeah, this one, this one's going to be the Pope. And yet, that's the life that St. John Paul II had. But the family he was born into in 1920 in Poland was one that experienced challenges. Of course, there was incredible happy times, incredible times of joy, of, of family time. But as a young boy, his mother passes away. And then at the age of 12, his only sibling, his older brother, passes away. And then by the time he's, I believe, 19, his dad passes away. So he realizes he's basically an orphan by the time that he's 20 years old. But not only the personal suffering that John Paul II has to, has to endure, also the ones in the society. Because Poland goes through so much goes in 1939, of course, the German Blitzkrieg comes in and overruns Poland. And then once they're, they're fought off, the communists come in. So he's, he matures in terrible times, doesn't get much worse than this. And that experience <clears throat> of suffering is always part and parcel of St. John Paul II. This experience of not just personal suffering and loss, but even the physical suffering at the end of his life as he deals with Parkinson's or even the, the tragedy of just being raised in amongst the Nazis and the communists. But as he, he grieves the loss of his mother as a young boy, his father takes him to a shrine of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the young John Paul II recalls, I remember telling his mother, he remembers telling his mother, or telling the Blessed Virgin Mary, you must be my mother now. My earthly mother is past. Now you must be the one to show me a mother's love. And he carried that his entire life, this incredible love of the Blessed Virgin Mary, this incredible just care and concern for Mary and praying the rosary always so faithfully. And he did that his entire life, of course, as a young priest, as a a professor, as the Archbishop of Krakow, Poland, and then, of course, as the Pope. And in 2000, in April of 2000, he describes that day, a day in April, I believe it was the 5th, as the happiest day of his life. And that day, he canonized St. Faustina Kowalska as a saint. 
and then establishes Divine Mercy Sunday. And all of our parishes have an image of Divine Mercy hanging up somewhere in the front of the church. And he says that's the happiest day of his life because it's this great message that he gets to share with the entire world, the message of God's mercy, not of his not of his wrath, but of of the love, of the mercy that he comes, his broken heart for a world that's in dire need of the mercy and the love of God. That's his happiest day of his life, is to get to formalize the message of mercy for the world. And of course, he has to make this decision to do this. All of his day-to-day life, all of his day-to-day decisions are centered upon the Eucharist. Even as the Pope, you think of all the different things the Pope has to do. The demands are just unfathomable. He begins every day with at least an hour before the Blessed Sacrament, before the Eucharist, asking God to strengthen him, asking God to give him the wisdom, the clarity, and the insight for his life as the Pope. And as we discern this, right, he made all of his decisions before the Blessed Sacrament And that's what we're doing here today, asking the Lord to guide this decision before Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And as we wrestle with John Paul II and his life and his mission and what he means to all of us, we ask, like, is his experience something we want to universalize for our entire parishes? Is his life, his example, his way of holiness the path forward for us? Because all of us have something to learn from his life, as we do from every saint. But there's something about his life that St. Paul talks about being all things to all people. John Paul II seems to have done that. He goes through turbulent social times. And who knows what our future has in store, but there's probably going to be a little bit of that. He goes through turbulent personal times where he's, he's got to wrestle with the loss of somebody he loves. And you and I, we all have to do that. We all have to wrestle with the loss of somebody that we love. But even his spiritual path, the path of mercy, but also the path of entrusting ourselves to the Blessed Virgin Mary, our loving Jesus in the Eucharist, that's something for us, something that might be really important for all of our spiritual lives. And so we look, is John Paul II the example? But not just the example, the teacher, the father for our parishes to show us the way, to show us the path of heaven. Is there something in his life that we look towards that we say that that's the model for all of us? That's the model for each and every one of us. And he'll teach us that path. And so like John Paul II, we come before the Lord with decisions. We come before the Lord having to make discernment and decisions. And hopefully all of us are at the point where we say, man, it's hard to go wrong here. Because the Lord's done so much for us. And there's so much that God wants to offer our parishes and our future. And so as you take this decision before the Lord with this last period of silence before we have benediction, just as you leave, the, uh, the voting chest there is in the middle of the church. So as you, as you leave, feel free to drop off your ballot there. And we entrust all of this into the Lord's hands. You know, maybe as you drop off your ballot, you just make that simple prayer of, okay, Lord, we surrender. Anything you want, we give you. We'll entrust this, this future, this name, this process, everything we have into your, into your hands. And so we do that spiritually. We do it formally in, in, our, in our ballots. And ultimately, we do it with great trust. That just as the Lord guided all of these saints, just as the Lord cared for John Paul II, he too will care for us and our parishes.